good morning. My name's Peter, and uh, I am preaching my first sermon to you guys this morning. I'm excited about it. I joined staff about three months ago as one of the pastors here, and uh, it's been great getting to know you guys. Uh, I think every week, my wife Karen and I have gone to someone different's house for dinner um, and have just freeloaded off people, and you've cooked great food, and it's, it's been awesome just spending time with you. Um, it's important that I establish something from the get-go because um, I ran into this problem as I was having conversation with someone when we're talking about the pastors here at the church. Uh, it's really important that you put our names in a certain order because um, I was uh, telling someone who the, the names of the pastors of the church was and um, I said, yeah, we've got Pete, Pete and Tom. And uh, it started to sound like Peeping Tom. And uh, you do not want to tell people that your pastor is peeping Tom. It's not what we want at Restoration Church. And also, uh, if you say Tom, Pete, Pete, it sounds a little bit like Tom's pee-pee. And so it's important that you're not telling people that the pastor of Restoration Church is Tom's pee-pee. So please, if you're going to talk about us, it's Pete, Tom, Pete. Okay, just get that out. Uh, Let's all say it together. You ready? Pete, Tom, Pete. Okay, now that we've got that cleared up, uh, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. I, I grew up in, um, most of my time was in Toowoomba. We moved here in 1998, me and my family. And uh, I went to COC, now Highlands, and graduated there in 05 and went on to USQ. So Toowoomba, born and bred, um, couldn't get rid of me. I did a Bachelor of Education there and uh, went on to teach maths and science at a high school and taught that for about a year and realized I didn't want to teach that anymore and uh, wasn't passionate enough about maths and science. And so what I really wanted to, to teach was the Bible. So I went off to, uh, I said I'd go to Bible college. I ended up um, going to a seminary in the States. So I moved over to Dallas, Texas in 2012 and I started a degree over there. I uh, was over there for about two years doing that degree and then I moved back uh, to Toowoomba in 2014. I um, joined staff at Cumridge Church of Christ. I was on staff there for four years and then uh, finished up there in 2018 and, and had a desire to go back and do more study. And so returned back to the States, back to Dallas and um, yeah, kicked off a, a new degree and, and have been working, had been working through that. While I was over there, uh, I met the love of my life, supersized McDonald's. How good? <laughs> no, it was uh, a young lady named Karen She's sitting over here in the uh, second row, and uh, we got married October 2021, 2020, 2020, yeah, and uh, yeah, this is going well, this is, this is going well, uh, and uh, some of you have already heard this, but we are, um, we're having a baby as well, so Karen's pregnant, um, and uh, yes, the little one's due the end of September. So we're excited that that's me and um, I'm really glad to be here and really glad to be able to open God's word with you this morning and share. Um, as I said, most of my life I've, I've grown up in the church. I was a pastor's kid. Um, I've, I've pretty much been around the church my whole life. I went to a Christian school. I studied at a Christian seminary. I've worked at a couple of churches now for, well, three, including this one, for over six years. And um, as, I, as I've worked in these churches and in these spaces, I have a lot of conversations with people about their life. And um, th- there seems to be a theme that, that pops up over and over 
as I converse with different people and you may have uh, heard these conversations as well and it's this idea or this theme that we need to be better. Um, sometimes I will ask people, you know, how, how's your walk with the Lord? How's your spiritual life? And they'll say, oh yeah, it's okay, but I, just, I need to be better at reading my Bible. I need, I need to pray more. Um, it's, just, it's just not where it should be. It needs, it needs to be better or I, I might ask, you know, how's, how's your marriage? Oh, I need to be a, a better husband. I need to be better at loving my spouse. Um, I might ask, how's, how's purity going? Uh, it, it could be better. I, I need to sort of stop wandering onto certain websites. I, I need to start bouncing my eyes. I need to kind of stop giving in to temptation so easily. Um, how's, how's parenting? Uh, it could be better need to kind of stop being angry with my kids so much. I get so frustrated with them. And uh, those are all good things, good desires to have. But when I listen to those answers, I, I just keep hearing, I need to be better. I need to be better. I need to do better. I need to try harder. And it sounds exhausting, doesn't it? And it's this idea that we just have to keep doing better and better as we live our life and maybe you felt this way there's always been an area in your life that you felt like I I can never get a hold of that I can never kind of conquer that I can can never do that well enough I can never kind of get to the point that I think I should be at in my Christian walk and I think sometimes churches are really good at kind of just showing us hey this is where you need to be better this is where you need to try harder This is where you need to do more. And what happens is, over and over, as we hear that message and we feel the guilt or the lack of of being better, we start to get exhausted. We actually start to question sometimes the goodness of God. Because we, we think, if this is what the Christian life is, if it is trying to reach a certain standard or be proficient in this area and I just keep failing, what, what does God think of me? Is this what he had for us when he sent Christ? Is this what it is all about? Because it's getting exhausting. And if you're honest with yourself and you don't have to tell anybody else this, okay? If you're anything like me, there's been moments in your life where you've wanted to throw in the towel or you felt like it would be a lot easier and funner if I wasn't a Christian because I wouldn't have to do these things I don't want to do. Anyone felt that before? Anyone wrestled with that tension before? Right? You see, the Christian life, if we wrongly understand it, can be exhausting. And eventually, if we just keep operating in that framework, we normally give up and we walk away. And so, I wonder this morning, if is that what Jesus came to offer? Is that what he wants for us? Is that what he's asked us to do, give us more to do? Today, I want to answer the question as we start a new series leading into Easter. We're going to start at the Sermon on the Mount. And I know that probably doesn't feel like the place to start, but I think before we get to the cross, we have to understand why Jesus goes to the cross. And uh, next week, I'm going to look more at what Jesus says and does, and I, th- I think it'll lead us really well into Good Friday. 
So this morning we're going to look at three things in this passage. We're going to find out what is the standard for entering the kingdom of heaven. Now, the kingdom of heaven, you've probably heard that before, but I want to define it before we move further. When I say the kingdom of heaven, because you're going to hear it a few times, I think the most obvious thing that we think of is it's that when we get into heaven, when we die. We get into heaven when Jesus returns. And it does mean that, that is part of it, but it's not the only part of it. You've probably heard of this tension or this idea of the now and the not yet. And we see that Jesus, when he came to earth, he, he began the kingdom of heaven and he inaugurated, but it isn't complete yet. It isn't in its, in its entirety yet. And now, now we live in this not yet phase. And so the kingdom of heaven is not just about where we get to in the end. It's also about how we have right relationship with God right now. It is the Christian life. And so we want to ask the question, what is the standard for entering this kingdom of heaven? Second thing I want to look at is, and this is a spoiler, why you can't meet the standard. And thirdly, if that's so, how should we approach the Christian life in light of this? We're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, and I love the Gospels because the Gospels tell us about what happened when God walked the earth as a man. And Matthew, our author, arranges the content because he wants us to see Jesus. Matthew got to walk and talk with Jesus and he sat and he listened and he looked into the eyes of God. And he writes this material because he wants us to see him. He doesn't want us to miss the Savior. And so the Gospels are full of these accounts about Jesus and <clears throat> We're going to look at Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. And we get the benefit of hearing the words of Jesus from someone who sat and listened. In chapter 5, Jesus is beginning his public ministry. He's been born. He's escaped the, the, the uh, plot of, of murder from Herod. He's been baptized. He's overcome the temptation of the devil. So we know he's different already. And then he starts... A sermon. And in 5.1, he goes up on a mountain. The text tells us he goes up on the mountain and he opens his mouth and he teaches his disciples. And uh, there's a photo coming up. Here's the mountainside. I took this photo myself in Israel in 2019, uh, overlooking the Sea of Galilee there. It's an awesome spot, very peaceful. Uh, and it's not really a mountain at all. It's more of a hillside. It's not, it's not big. And the, uh, they actually say the Sea of Galilee would have been higher than that, so it's, it's not even as far, wouldn't even have been as far to the water there. It's more like a hillside, but Matthew calls it a mountain. And he does that because uh, he is trying to allude to us, his readers, that there's something important going on here. You see, in the Old Testament, when uh, a leader went up to the mountain, he went to talk with God. And the most prominent leader that did this was Moses. And he went up the mountain and he got the Ten Commandments and the law. And so when Jesus goes up the mountain and begins to speak, what do you think he's going to talk about? The law. And so he goes up there and he begins to talk. And as I go through these points, I'm going to keep hammering two of them, the first two points. What's the standard for entering the kingdom of heaven? And why you can't attain it. 
Because I want to convince you what I think Jesus is trying to convince us of. He, I'm only going to look at three areas of the law. Jesus covers six, but we just don't have time to go through all six. The first part of the law that Jesus addresses is that of murder. In verse 21 of chapter 5, he begins his discourse and he starts by quoting one of the Ten Commandments. He says, You've heard that it was said of those of old, so referring back to the Old Testament law, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. And then Jesus cuts directly to the inward manifestation of that outward, um, that outward action, and that's anger. Verse 22, he says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus says that even if you don't commit literal murder, that anger that you have on the inside towards your brother is considered a sin worthy of judgment, just like murder. The insult here, some of you might in your translations, uh, the insult can be translated raka. That's the, the Greek word and it, it literally means to be to, to have an empty head, uh, which is not a bad burn if you are wanting to go after somebody's intelligence, uh, to call them an empty head. You're basically, basically saying you're worthless. There is nothing between your ears. And anyone who's had siblings knows that if that's the least you're calling your brothers, you're, you're actually doing pretty well. See, what's Jesus doing here? Is he changing the law? Is he heightening it? Is he making it more extreme than the original? No. He's explaining what the law was always meant to be. It was the character of God represented on earth. It was the standard by which one must attain to enter the kingdom of heaven. See, the law was never just about the outward actions. It was also about the inward desires and motivations behind those actions. Jesus says that the heart makes one guilty or not guilty, as well as the outward actions. You see, the thing about anger is that it can manifest itself on the outside, but most of the time, it stays on the inside. Sometimes we see it and it comes out in our actions, but anger always begins on the inside. At a heart level. Someone can be sitting there with a blank look, looking as peaceful as can be, and inside there is a raging anger going on about something, someone. So what's wrong or misaligned with the heart when it gets angry with someone and calls them worthless? It shows you that you do not value your brother's life like God does. Your perception that a brother has no value to you misperceives God's love. So that only follows that if you want to reconcile with God, you should go and reconcile with your brother. And that's why he says in verse 23 in the next section, So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. 
Now, if you're following along with me, you're probably starting to realize you're in a bit of trouble. Because not only do you realize your actions don't measure up, your emotions, your motivations, your desires, they, they're not going to make it either. And I want to confess to you all, confession right up here, I get angry. I'm a Bronco supporter, I get angry. The last five years, I've gotten real angry. They are so hard to watch right now. So what is the standard to enter the kingdom of heaven? You must never be angry inwardly or outwardly with someone that diminishes their value. Why can't you attain it? Because you've got an evil heart. Now that might sound harsh, but stick with me. Now, if I was in trouble with that one, I'm in even more trouble with this one. The next area of the law that Jesus addresses is in verse 27. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Straight out of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Once again, Jesus takes it to the heart level. The place where the law was always meant to be. For Israel was to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul and mind. Deuteronomy 11. Therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and soul. The lust of the heart is the desire for pleasure that is not rightfully yours to have. But you desire it anyway. You think about it, we fantasize about it, you imagine what it would be like. You see, that's the way the lust works. It's always chasing something else, something new, something different, something you haven't had before. Something you know you're not meant to have. And it's never had enough. It's like the flesh it's, it's a rabid dog and it just keeps eating it. Even when you feed it, it's not long again and it's hungry. You know, as someone who in their mid-teenage years stumbled upon some images online for the first time and that started a desire within me that kept increasing to see more and new things. And, and I got addicted to that all the way up to the age of 20. And I've, because of that, I've built these pathways and these habits in my brain that have taken years to reform. And they're still being reformed. Where I want what isn't mine, where I look where I shouldn't. You know, I'm going to struggle with lust probably for the rest of my life. It's my ditch. I know it. And those around me who are close to me, they have to know it too. You see, you used to have to go out of your way to find those images. Now you have to go out of your way to avoid them because they're everywhere. And guys, we have a battle on our hands. And sometimes we fail. Sometimes I still lust. I'd love to stand up here and tell you I don't. 
and I don't sin anymore, but it's just not true. We all struggle. And my heart still desires things that it shouldn't. Many of you have been battling lust for years. You can't help the lingering look, the, the internet searches, the fantasies. And Jesus says at a heart level, you are committing adultery. What's the standard for entering the kingdom of heaven? No lust. Why can't you attain it? You've got an evil heart. Some of you might be saying, well, if I just didn't, if I just stopped looking at things, it'd be fine. If I just didn't look at those provocative images or the, the person that walks down the street that catches my eye, if I just didn't turn my head, I'd stop lusting. Right? But look on what Jesus says in verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than the whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that of your whole body go into hell. What's he saying? This is hyperbole or borderline sarcasm. He's saying, if that's all that it takes for you to be able to stop lusting, do it. If all it took was you to, to gouge an eye out or take a limb, you should do it. But that's not what's going to stop it. You see... You can pluck your eyes out and still lust. You can chop off your hands and still take what isn't rightfully yours. Because you're going to do it on the inside, at a heart level. In the fourth century, when Christianity became um, not only legal, but the major religion in the Roman Empire under Constantine, there was a group of people who felt as though, because they were no longer being persecuted for their faith, that um, in order to take up their cross and lay their life down, they would leave society and the benefits that came with it, and they would go and they would live in the desert in isolation and without, as their way to follow Christ. They're called the Desert Fathers. And as they went into the desert, they would spend their days in prayer and in the disciplines of the faith. And they would read the scriptures that they had and they would copy them out. And they would do manual labor so that they might be able to survive out there. And you know what one of the biggest challenges for the men out there was? Lust. Lust. St. Anthony, there's a photo of him coming up or it's a depiction by Michelangelo of probably the most famous and first desert father. This is Michelangelo's depiction of his battle out there in the desert with evil. He talks about being out there for 20 years battling lust and he is completely isolated from women. You see, we can tear out the eyes and we will still in our heart find a way to chase something that isn't rightfully ours. The third and last example Jesus uses in the law, sorry, third one we're looking at, not the last one he does. Verse 43, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. First thing you need to know about this is that the second half 
that he quotes at the beginning actually isn't in the law at all. You can go to Leviticus 19.19 and, and you will read that you shall love your neighbor, but you won't read and hate your enemy. So why does Jesus quote it? Because Jesus quotes it because it had become part of the tradition of the way of thinking of the Jews at the time. See, Israel had been under the rule of a foreign nation for hundreds of years. First it was Babylon, then it was Persia, then Greece came in, and now when he's talking, Rome is over them. And there was groups of people who sought to overtake Rome and restore Israel to where it was meant to be. And they were called zealots, and they would do it, whatever means necessary. They were up for it, right? And uh, one of these zealots ends up being Jesus' disciples. And so uh, it became mainstream under, understanding and teaching that, yes, you do love your neighbor, but we hate the enemy. Even though God had put them rightfully under their judgment. And in fact, in the law, in Exodus 23, it says, If you find the donkey or the ox of the one who hates you, you should return it to him. And if you find a donkey or an ox and it is getting uh, overtaken by the load that it's carrying, you should help release it and return it. You see, the Lord didn't teach to hate your enemy. What's the standard for entering the kingdom of heaven? Loving your enemies. Why can't we attain it? Because we have an evil heart. Then Jesus makes this summary statement of his message in verse 48. And if you're not sure what Jesus is trying to say or you've tuned out, now's a great time to jump back in. He summarizes and he says in verse 48, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What's the standard for entering the kingdom of heaven? Perfection. Why can't we attain it? Because we have an evil heart. See, Jesus is showing you the standard. He is not shy about the standard. And if you're anything like me and you're honest with yourself, you're not going to make it. We're in a lot of trouble. Because we can't live up to that standard. So why does Jesus preach this? Is God just trying to make us feel bad? Trying to give us a standard we can never live up to? That would be pretty twisted by God. Come down here, throw some condemnation around and take off. Is he trying to just give us a bunch of rules that are so heavy, it's a burden we can't carry? Some of you actually feel like this. Some of you probably feel like God is out to get me. God has given me a long laundry list of things to do, and I have to do it. And if I don't, he's disappointed with me, and he's upset with me, and I'm under his condemnation. That's not the point of the sermon. The point of the sermon is back in verse 17. Chapter 5, verse 17, he says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus fulfills the law. 
It's the most important thing you need to know this morning is that there is one who is able to keep the law, not just at a surface level, at a heart level. There was one who was able to keep the righteous standard of God. He was never angry with his brother to the point of sin. He never lusted after a woman. He never lied. He never retaliated to those who treated him poorly. And he prayed for those who persecuted him. Even as they nailed him to a Roman cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The only one who lived the perfect and righteous life is the man giving the sermon. Not a 60% righteousness, not an 80, not a 90, 100% righteousness. What must he be like? What must it have been like for Matthew to walk and to talk with him? To be a friend of him. Someone who had never been affected by the poison of sin. Whose motivations and desires was always for good. We have never met anyone else like him. There has been no one else like him. See, the point of the sermon is not to wallow in your sins. The point is to see Jesus' righteousness. God isn't trying to get you or give you a weight that you can't carry. He's trying to show you the one who can. But friends, we still have a problem. We've identified that we are not worthy. We cannot live up to the standard. There was one who is worthy and lived up to the standard. But unless we can attain that righteousness, our situation is still doomed. If only there was a way. Jesus, is there a way? Let's go to the end of the sermon. Chapter 7 and verse 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, so he doubles down there. If you, who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? All we have to do is ask Christ for His righteousness and He gives it to us. So many people think those verses are about prayers. All prayers, general prayers, you just got to ask, God's going to answer all your prayers. It's not about all prayers. I've got plenty of prayers that went unanswered, and I know you do too. Those verses are not about prayers. They're about one prayer, and that is asking Christ for his righteousness. And he guarantees you get it. Friends, we know how to good, give good gifts to our children. 
when birthdays and Christmas roll around, we know how to give good gifts. Because we see the joy on our children's faces and kids' faces. And if God has given us the greatest gift of all in His Son and His righteousness, then how good must He be? And how much must He love you? God is not out to get you. God is out to rescue you from sin and death. And until you see the beauty of Christ, who already lived the life that you cannot, the Christian life will be exhausting. It will be hard work. You will feel like you need to be better all the time. But if you see Christ for who He is and His righteousness and His perfection and His love that He offers to you, Christianity is a joy as you walk with the Saviour. He is worthy of our allegiance. He is worthy of our worship. The man who stood on the mountain overlooking the Sea of Galilee offered the world himself, if only you ask. And if we ever feel like we're exhausted because of Christianity, the Christian life, and we're burdened by the weight of tasks or guilt or being better, we have to come back to the man on the mountain. We have to come back to Jesus. We have to remember that he went down that mountain and he took up a cross and he died so that we might have his righteousness. Jesus did not come to make you better. Jesus came to make you perfect. One day we will stand blameless before the Father. Blameless. How is that possible? Because we will be wearing Christ's righteousness, not our own. Would you pray with me as we finish and the band makes their way up? Father, so often I get stuck in this mentality of trying to prove myself to you or live up to a standard I never can. Help me to believe what Jesus preached on the mountain that day. Help us all to believe that, to really, truly be convinced that Jesus did everything that we cannot and that he offers his righteousness. I pray this morning that we would understand your love in a brand new way through the life of Christ. God, as we go out this week and we fall short again, because we will, help us to return to Christ. To look at his life, that where we fail, he succeeded. And that our relationship with you is based on His work, not our own. 
I pray, I pray for my friends who might be burdened, who might be at the end of their rope, wondering if this Christianity thing is really for them. God, I pray your spirit would reveal the beauty and marvelousness of Jesus. There is no one else like him. Help us to see it, to know it, to believe it. Amen.